My daddy's gone on, my grandpa's gone on, my great-grandpa's gone on. But they still live. You know, the spray is still here. Well, they tell me of a home where no storm clouds rise. Tell me of a home far away. Hello and welcome to our very first episode of It Still Lives, a Foxfire podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Cami Ahrens. I'm the assistant curator here at the Foxfire Museum and Heritage Center, and this is TJ Smith. Hi, I'm the executive director at the Foxfire Museum and Heritage Center and a folklorist. And we are so excited to take you on this journey with us through Southern Appalachian heritage using one story at a time. So Foxfire, if you're not familiar, we're a nonprofit whose mission is dedicated to the preservation and documentation of Southern Appalachian culture. And we've been doing this for about 53 years. Uh, it started out in a high school classroom as a uh, English project where students were challenged to go out into their community and talk to their uh, neighbors and friends and family about what their lives were like and the kinds of things that they experienced growing up. This was a project that bridged the gap between generations, uh, and the product of which was a magazine. And the magazine became wildly popular very quickly and eventually led to the first Foxfire book, which was published in 1972. Since that time, we've published 12 books in this in the original volume. Um, we have 10 companion books. As a product of that as well, uh, the students elected to create what we now call the Museum and Heritage Center, which serves as a couple different things. It is a museum and heritage center. We have uh, traditional museum exhibits, uh, in, in the context of an outdoor museum, uh, we have cabins depicting um, Appalachian life from about the mid-19th century to the mid-20th century, but we also have active demonstrations of heritage skills that are still alive and well, things like weaving and blacksmithing and that sort of thing. Additionally, the students continue to work on the magazine. Um, it's been in continuous publication since 1967. Uh, so this also serves as sort of a campus. It's an ongoing learning center or an active learning center. Um, we host classes for uh, anybody who wants to sign up for them. Uh, we do special events, and it's all around this, this sort of context of uh, interpreting, exhibiting, demonstrating, preserving Southern Appalachian culture. And that's, re that's the whole region, not just our little... Uh, post native postage stamp of soil, uh, but uh, stretching you know to Kentucky, Tennessee, West Virginia, so on and so forth. So that's what we are. So as you can see, we have a lot of arms to Foxfire, and we've got a lot of activities going on. Um, one of the most rich aspects of our collection, though, is our archive. We have over two thousand interviews that were conducted beginning in 1967 and all the way up into the present. As TJ mentioned, we have a lot of students who still come and do the magazine program every year. So this podcast is really targeting those archives and trying to pull some pieces of the audio that we've collected over the years. Um, one of the most you know, popular collections that we have that was put out was our uh, Foxfire record, which is called It Still Lives. It was published in the 1980s, um, and it features stories and songs um, collected during interviews that students conducted. So the podcast itself is named after this record. We thought it was kind of fitting for uh, bringing light to our archives. It, it makes a statement about something, right? So It Still Lives um, is really a statement about folk culture in general and about um, how uh, these traditions are carried forward. And so um, a, lot of the, a lot of what people know about Foxfire is its past, right? They remember the first, you know, four or five books. Um, 
and they think about it as, you know, we're losing something. I can't tell you the number of comments we get on our social media pages or just people emailing us or sending us messages through our, our website. You know, you're doing such a great job because this stuff is, you know, disappearing. But that's the thing about folk culture. If it's relevant and if it's meaningful to the community, it doesn't disappear. And what we're seeing is that, you know, a lot of these same traditions that were covered in the early books are still around. They're still present and in some cases even more relevant than ever because, uh, there's been this sort of resurgence in interest. You know, things are cyclical like this. So there's this resurgence in interest in what we call heritage skills or, or you know, um, uh, living authentically or living um, with purpose and, and, and people doing things with their hands and doing things for themselves, growing their own food, preserving their own food, making their own clothes, what have you. So, like, there's a, you know, a renewed interest in a lot of the material that was first collected in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and we're seeing new purveyors of these traditions. So it still lives as also a nod to that idea that, you know, yes, these are things that we're pulling from our archive, from, you know, uh, interviews from 40, 50 years ago. However, they're still very much relevant today. And that's one of the things that I love most about Foxfire is that most history museums tend to focus on a specific theme or specific part of time. Um, but Foxfire really focuses on this continuum of history. You know, the, the history isn't just in the past, but it's living, not in the sense that we're dressing up like people in the past, but in the fact that we're bringing it into the present and incorporating it into our daily lives, into the daily lives of the culture around us. Um, so we're in a really unique position to be able to kind of capture that process as it happens, but also to be a leader in that process. And so I think Foxfire does something really unique. And so this podcast, again, is just contributing to that um, project and process of bringing the past to life, but also bringing what's happening now um, into into this narrative that's part of Southern Appalachian heritage. And I want to add one thing, one caveat too, is that just to remind folks that this is a this is a project that came from young people. So this is a project that started with these high school students who are from these communities. So it's really unique from a museum standpoint or from a heritage center standpoint in that the the source of this material and the source of the interpretation is coming from the culture itself, not from somebody outside of the culture. So these are, you know, the 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 access, the levels of access that these young people had was um, because of their relationship with the people they were interviewing. A lot of times, again, these were their grandparents or their parents uh, or their or you know lifelong family friends. You know, a lot of times in museums, it's it's kind of this uh, sort of detached, distant like you know, displaying a culture. Like, we're going to show a gap. you. Yes. There's a gap between yep. the material or the folk remains of that culture and the, the current community or the current population. Right. And here we've got a continuity. Mm -hmm. we, uh, we create a bridge yes. between those generations and between that content. Um, you know, it's just amazing, always amazes me that those students took that initiative and, you know, really talk about claiming a sense of agency over your own culture. Yeah. So... We're excited to bring this to you and to share the work that they did um, and the work that they continue to do. So, yeah. So moving into the recording that we're going to share with you today, it is a story uh, told by Stanley Hicks on the um, album I mentioned, It Still Lives. Um, so you heard him at the very beginning of this podcast. He talks about It Still Lives, um, the material culture from his grandparents, his father, um, hanging on the wall, and it still lives, it still goes on. That was his voice um, introducing our podcast, introducing the record, 
um, and we'll be sharing a little bit more of him in just a minute. So Stanley Hicks lived in um, Western North Carolina near the Tennessee border, and he was mostly known for making musical instruments. He came from a pretty long tradition of musical instrument making, but he is also related to um, some really great storytellers, and he himself was a prolific storyteller. So Stanley uh, is maybe not as well known as his cousin Ray Hicks. Uh, Ray was really um, spotlighted as the storyteller. If you go and uh, just you know go online and Google Ray Hicks, uh, there was work you know with the Smithsonian uh, coming in and doing things with Ray, and um, he was you know this really great storyteller who was recorded. And Stanley was more known for his banjos and his building of banjos, and he's featured in Foxfire book quiz. Oh, three <laughs> for his banjos. Um, and uh, you know, and his banjo playing ability, but in the context of that interview, and this is this is just going to lead over into this larger discussion about storytelling. In the context of the interview that students are conducting with Stanley about you know banjos and and, and instrument making, story works its way in, and that's really the nature of a lot of these interviews. Is that the students uh, a lot of times would go into an interview with a person with no preconceived notions about what they were going to find, no prescription for what kinds of questions to ask. Um, they did prepare questions, but they were more uh, open-ended and just sort of exploratory. And in, the, and in the context of the interview, these stories would come out because storytelling is a narrative impulse. And when it's a part of a community's, uh, you know, cultural matter, if, you know, they work in story, um, they just, they happen naturally. So a lot of times story is a, you know, a, an opportunity for the individual who's talking to illustrate a specific point. Um, but it's also just part of their nature to share a story and, and to, to do the different things the stories do, you know, to entertain and to, and, but also to, uh, create a connection with their audience and the audience can be an audience of one or an audience of many. So, in the context of these these conversations with Stanley, these stories start coming out, and and the students are just like, "Wow, this is great." I wanted to just interject there and yeah. say I think you know this is a great way to talk about oral history as well because oral history is obviously the transmission of history and stories across generations that's not been written down. Um, and what the students were doing, although we call it by many different names, cultural journalism, ethnography. Mm-hmm. Um, it really is just collecting oral histories, um, and that's why all of these stories started c- to come out, because it wasn't, you know, a formal interview. That's right. Like we might think of today. If we were to have a guest on our podcast, we'd that's right. a specific topic, short and sweet. These were these were sitting down in front of their elders in the community and just really receiving all of the knowledge um, that they had to share. So, and, that's, and that's that access, you know, uh, topic again, where... Because of the the pre-existing relationships that often uh, were present between the students and the people they were interviewing, there was a certain there was a level of trust there that you would not get. You know, were this you know reporters from the Atlanta Journal or the Atlanta Constitution at that time because they were two separate papers. But you know, um, people coming you know from outside the community into the community to interview somebody, it would be a bit of very different product. Like it'd be, the interview had gone very differently, but because of that level of comfort these kinds of stories start coming out and, and Stanley's no different. And so Stanley was sharing these stories. And so after the initial interviews, the students would come back and look at what they got 
And then they would find these, like, okay, you know, we went and talked to Stanley. We learned that he makes banjos. We learned that he's been doing this for, you know, since he was a kid. But we also learned he's a great storyteller. So they would go back for second, third, fourth, fifth interviews sometimes and that were more um, focused on a specific aspect of that person or their life. And so for It Still Lives, they had this very focused interview about stories. And they wanted to get some specific things. So they got a jacktail, and they got some riddles, and then they got the story of the stinger snake. Which is what we're going to share today. And I, I found this really interesting because, you know, growing up, I think of folklore as fairy tales or fables because that's what I was exposed to as a child. But coming here into the mountains, there's a very different um, feel to the folklore. A lot of the folklore is based around animals. And you wouldn't necessarily immediately label it as folklore because sitting down and listening to this interview or listening to other interviews about snake tales, you, you believe it's true. Yeah. <laughs> I'm listening to Stanley in this snake tale for the first time, and I'm convinced that this is true. But when you look at the facts of the story, there's there's no way that it could possibly exist. Um, so there's a lot of animal tales and you recognize that coming out in the folklore because of exposure and in, in nature. And, and, you know, I, I'm resisting the urge to go too far down into this, like what is folklore rabbit hole? You know, this is a, a, a certain type of folklore. So when we talk about animal tales or legends, there is a expectation of belief. The audience is brought into the teller's world and inside that world, the teller, you know, if you're listening, believes this stuff. Like this is this is a part of who they are and they believe this and they want you to believe it. So it's that's sort of the goal. One of the goals of this kind of story is that, like, you know, you want to they, they want you to believe it. Like this is this is a thing that happened to me. Yeah. Um, and every contact that they interviewed had one of these tales. Every single right. one of them has the snake tale right. that they have to share with you. Yeah. Um, and, and so and then we, if we want to get just briefly into sort of the functions of folklore, I prescribe to sort of William Bascom, and this is a, a folklorist, William Bascom's, what he called the four functions of folklore. So on the very surface level, there's the, the entertainment value of uh, the folklore, whatever it be, be it a story, a song, um, a legend, a myth, what have you. But then there's these other layers as you dig down. And so under entertainment is this validation and it's within the context of a folk group. The validation is validating one's membership in that group. The people within that community, like Cammy was saying, you know, we've got so many different versions of the, of the stinger snake or the hoop snake tale. Right. And why does this story keep coming up and what's the purpose of it keep coming up? And, you know, chances are Stanley's told the story a million times and people have heard it more than once. But it's in that telling that everybody in the room who's heard the story before kind of has a moment of like, these are my people. Like, <laughs> this is my culture, right? I belong with these are this. This is something we share and that we recognize. And this is validating my place in this community, right? And then you dig down deeper, things get a little bit more sinister. I don't mean sinister might not be the great, greatest word, but it, <laughs> you know, there's, there's, there's aspects of folklore that control and educate. So we'll, we're going to get into that in the next one because of, of the, of what we're presenting in the next podcast. But I just wanted to introduce William Bascom to you. You can go again, go online, look up William Bascom 
and the four functions and that'll give you sort of a more perspective of like how like what folklore does because it's not just like you know these quaint stories or these quaint um pieces of uh, verbal art or oral tradition that people people use in in uh in their communities they do serve a purpose uh so you know when we talk about the snake tales we're talking about an animal tale we're talking about a, an animal legend um and we're talking about something that's being told uh that the teller wants you to believe it so so we'll go ahead and play this for you and we'll talk a little bit more about it afterwards um i just want to put it out there stanley does have a thick accent so if you have difficulty understanding some of the story we're going to post a full transcript to our website that you can access and read um just go to our website which is www.foxfire.org and go under news and journal and you can read along as he tells the story yep so we'll we'll be back in a minute have you killed any big rattlesnakes or something like that? Rattlesnakes? Well, I'll tell you now, I'm going to tell you this, and it's a fact, son. Ain't no joke about this. Yeah, I killed a rattlesnake something, I get bit one. But I killed a snake, I wish I'd have put it in the alcohol and checked it. You might not believe it, but it's the truth. I'm going to tell you the fact. I stayed over in Beach Creek years ago. I stayed over there. I've been here since 52. And I uh, went on down. It's been, I couldn't tell you how, I'd say it's been 35 years ago, 30 years anyway ago. And I stayed on Beach Creek over there, and they uh, cradled oats and stuff, you know, back then they cradled oats and stuff. And there's a patch of oats where they cradled that, and uh, there's an old where they'd stacked them at, and they tore the stack down. And the stubble, as you know, is about this high, and the grass was coming up in it. And I went up there to get some of these old pieces of rails and stuff, you know, to clean it up off of the ground for a fella, and his name take some of them to wood. And I don't know where you ever heard tell of it or not, but this was a stinger snake. And it had a stinger in its tail about this long with a joint in it, it's like a, as hard as a bone. And it come up, and I, I got to fighting it, and I fit it and fit it and fit it and fit it. And its head was slick, and it had hair, you saw birds, it had hair on it just like a, about like these woolly worms, not hardly that long. Hmm. And I bit that snake for 30 minutes and I was giving out, sweat was rolling off of me. And every time I'd strike it, it would disappear. You know, it just gone. And I'd see I fit it anyway, a half air. Finally, I just happened to, happened a good lick and hit it. Right in the back of the neck and knocked, uh, killed it. And it had a stinger on the end of its tail, hoop snakes is what they call them. You know, roll. Yeah. You know, they call them hoop snakes. Now, that's all one I ever saw. And I've heard Grandpa and I talk about them. They roll this way, and then when they get to you, this stinger goes in you. And he'd stand straight up on that. He'd stand straight up, and just stand it straight up. And I took it down to the road and hung it up in a bush. <clears throat> Tied a string around his neck and hung it up in the bush, and it stayed there for two months. You know, so it just, and people come everywhere to look at it. And it had hair, it was just a fine, it was pretty coarse, but it wasn't long, about this long, about, uh, I'd say about an eighth of an inch. And the stinger, and his tail, it had a, it had a joint in it, had a joint in that, and its head was slick. And I've never seen one since, and nobody else seen it. And if I took that snake and I put it into the, you know, put it in alcohol or something, I could have been rich. All right, so... This has got so many things going on. That <laughs> it's are... such a great story, though. I love it. It is a great story. And so uh, John Burrison 
uh, folklorist at Georgia State University. He was the reason I got into folklore. Uh, he did a storyteller's book um, back in the 90s, and he's got a hoop snake story that was collected in Hiawassee, which is, regionally speaking, pretty close by in Georgia. Um, and they call it the hoop snake, though, in that story. It still has a stinger, but the focus is on this, this idea of it turning into a hoop and rolling down the hill. So let's look at all the fantastical aspects of this snake, okay? <laughs> it's got a smooth head. It has a hairy body, and it has a jointed stinger on its end, and it travels by making itself into a hoop, like you would see the kids, like, you know... With yeah, the, playing hoops with play, the stick, that's rolling right. it down the hill. That, that's its mode of attack. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you see a lot of representations of it in the material culture, too, of these hoop snakes. Yes, yes. Uh, folk art, especially from mm-hmm. this region. So... What is, what's the point of these stories? Like, you know, if you just wanted to deconstruct it. Well, anytime you have a fantastical beast, right, it's it's sort of speaking to the natural environment of the community where these stories originate. So there's something, you know, especially with um, uh, West, you know, European Western cultures, uh, you know, Scots-Irish, English, etc., that when they came to the New World as they were coming to the new world too, sort of this, this relationship they had with nature was not the same kind of relationship that we see with indigenous peoples who were already here. So nature is a place where weird things happen. <laughs> it's, it, it is outside the safety bubble of your community. It is outside. It, it's something you rely upon, but it's also something that you have to approach with caution. Um, and so when we see these fantastical fantastical beasts uh that appear in our folklore in in these rural areas you know this is speaking to that sort of like you never know what you're going to find out there the way that these stories the motifs sort of the way that they're built it's always the same thing this happened to me nobody's seen it since you know at some point there was you know there was some uh validative element like you know hanging it in the tree or there were other people present and if you ask so and so, they'll tell you. So there's like this collusion, right? <laughs> not to, not to borrow from a folkloric from collusion. A, yeah, like not to like cash in on a hot word right now. But there is like there's a conspiracy there amongst tellers, right? Uh, or amongst these people in this community. Like, hey, we're all you know, a, a nod and a wink, right? Um, but it's it, it's a wonderful, you know. And you can imagine that the audiences are oftentimes young people. Right. And and just how that would absolutely just, you know, do you think Stanley is like out to pull their leg or does he do you think he like believes some piece of it himself? Because you can't be that great of a storyteller without like feeling some. That's the beauty of these legends. That is the beauty of the legend is you never know. It's amazing. (laughs) Uh, it's a nod and a wink and you know, it's again, it, it does hinge upon the teller's ability to maintain that perspective and that, you know, maintain, you know, poker face, right? <laughs> like, no, this is, this is it. This is real. 
I just want to throw a disclaimer out there. I've done extensive research, and even though Georgia is one of the most biodiverse states for snakes, um, there are no species that <laughs> are known to roll into hoops or have stingers or break into pieces like right. the joint snake is said to do. But, you know, there there already are dangers out there. That's the interesting thing, too, is like when you are talking about communities that, you know, this was a, a heavily logged area, so there was a lot of logging that was going on. There were all these dangerous occupations that put people in nature, and they encountered, you know, already dangerous things like rattlesnakes. And so there, you, know, you can sort of see the the um, the connection between the stinger and the rattlesnake, right? Mm-hmm. With the you know something oh, at yeah. the end of the tail. But everybody's got a, everybody's seen a rattlesnake, right? You know, everybody knows the rattlers are real. A rattlesnake would not be as exciting as you know the stinger snake. Just an interesting aside, uh, here locally in our county, in Raven County, where we're located, they're getting ready for a Bigfoot festival, like a big, no, a Bigfoot conference, right? So they're having this conference around Bigfoot because Bigfoot has now spread far beyond the Northwest. Um, It moved sort of to West Virginia for a while. There was like a, there was sort of like Bigfoot activity around West Virginia and now it's here in Georgia. It's previously been in Tennessee as well. And interestingly, one of our, our students conducted an interview just this past summer um, with a folk artist named Kip Ramey, and Kip had a Bigfoot story. And as it is with all legends, it's told in the, this is told in, not all legends, but as a lot with animal legends, told in the first person. And it's something that he experienced, and he there's an expectation of belief there. So it still lives in that this is a continuation Animal legends, animal tales have not gone away. They they've morphed, they've changed. There's different vehicles for with which we through which we share them. But these kinds of tales that occur in nature with these you know exotic fantastical beasts, they're still here. Well, and I think you know no matter how much scientific evidence we have, no matter how many times we Google it, every time we hear these stories, and I, this is either a credit to storyteller or a credit to us maintaining this own innocence um is that every time you hear these stories a part of you still kind of believes it questions the facts that you've learned yes um so i think it's really awesome to see that continue to this present day and to see that that type of relationship still maintained among our current students yeah absolutely and and i'm sure we'll encounter some more yeah yeah So I think that'll wrap it up for our first episode, Um, but please join us for our next episode. It'll be part two featuring more recordings from It Still Lives, but we'll be focusing more on the music aspect of it um, rather than the storytelling. Um, So we're going to talk about banjos and dulcimers and the fiddle and which one is really truly the mountain (laughs) instrument. So please join us next time. Um, Subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts, whether it be iTunes, Spotify, um, and leave us a rating or send us your thoughts. And feel free to reach out to us at It's still lives at foxfire.org or head on over to our website www.foxfire.org we also have a um we have a twitter account oh yes follow us on twitter at it still lives hashtag about our podcast that's right we look forward to hearing from you and see you next time thanks thank you bye that you can throw it away.